This month on Focus Black Oklahoma, we examine the case of a young Oklahoma woman who is caught in the center of the struggle between politics and an individual's rights. Learn about the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative's doula program and its mission to ensure that pregnant black women have the medical support they need. Hear the arguments for and against Oklahoma's ballot question to legalize recreational cannabis. Discover the legacy of all black towns established in Indian Territory prior to Oklahoma statehood. And find out how the Black Opry is working to recenter black artists in country music. All this and more on Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma is sponsored by OKCMOA. Fighters for Freedom, the William H. Johnson Picturing Justice Exhibition through May 14th. Celebrating black activists, their challenges and accomplishments. OKCMOA.com. This is Focus Black Oklahoma. I'm Jacob Littlebear. And I'm Kuma Roberts. The insidious aspects of implicit bias are an ever-present part of the lived experiences of people of color in America. Black women are the most susceptible to bias through the lens of the healthcare system. Dr. Jabron Pasha has a story about the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative and its mission to ensure that more pregnant black women have the medical support they need through their doula program. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted health inequities in the United States. As the country tries to make sense of seemingly unbelievable infection and death rates that marginalized people are experiencing from COVID, many healthcare institutions and community organizations leverage the data from these disparities to have more conversations about health inequities in general. Amongst the many health inequities, maternal mortality rates of indigenous and black women garnered a great deal of attention. We know that women of color, specifically black women, are three to five times more likely to die from childbirth. That's Amari Jimerson, Executive Director of Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative, or TBEI. Before joining TBEI in September of 2022, Amari served as Deputy Director for Tulsa Parks. Now at TBEI, Amari is working to address the maternal mortality disparities in Tulsa. Historically, we could get into the whole systematics of the way racism exists within our our culture and country. Um, Definitely the way people live and experience life as a person of color, they they are more prone to different stressors, which ultimately lead to um, negative health outcomes, which we've seen not just in maternal health, but across all different areas that health touches. And then going back to the system, a lot of people think that it means that a provider may be racist And it's not necessarily that they are intentionally racist. It's just the way we've all been programmed coming up in our culture. And when we see someone, we ultimately make a decision. So there's that natural bias um, that comes out in the, the care that the woman receives. The impact of implicit bias on people of color, especially black women, is well documented. Studies have shown that black women often feel unheard by their physicians. This is not just perceived. A 2016 study in the Journal of Clinical Oncology found that non-Black physicians spend less time with their Black patients, less time listening to them, yet more time talking during encounters. 
So we have a couple of different ways that we like to attack um, the issue. So our biggest program, our flagship program is our doula program, which I'll let Ashley tell you a little bit more about, but providing support and services for women who are pregnant um, as well through their postpartum care up to 12 months. Um, we also do a lot of work with hospitals in our hospital quality improvement program. So things like team birth, which actually works to make sure that the patient is included in the voice to determine their care, um, getting ready to approach another program where we dig deep into the data that hospitals collect around maternal care so that we can identify the areas that they need support in. We also are about to launch a preconception program called Embrace. We think we need to be working with women before they become pregnant to make sure that they're making healthier choices that will ultimately lead to um, healthier births um, and healthier outcomes for them as a whole as a woman. And then we also have a program called Queen's Village, which is basically just a safe space creating community for black women. But we know that when women have an outlet to release their stress, it leads to healthier outcomes. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine reported that the continuous presence of a doula during pregnancy is one of the most effective tools to improve labor and delivery outcomes. Doulas have been found to spend as much as 6 to 11 times more time with expecting mothers than the clinical health care team. This contact is impacting clinical outcomes. A 2017 study in the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews showed that pregnant persons who use the support of a doula are less likely to require cesarean birth or use pain medication and more likely to give birth spontaneously with shorter labor times. Patient experiences improved as well. Even with that data, many people are unfamiliar with the term doula. TBEI is working to make doula a household term. Ashley Wilson is the manager of TBEI's community-based doula program and a practicing community doula. A doula is someone that provides physical, emotional, and um, informational educational support to pregnant people. So what we do is we visit with our um, clients once a week, all through the prenatal part of pregnancy. So prenatal, um, where they're all during labor and delivery. And then we um, visit two to three times a week postpartum. Um, for the first two to three times a day, I'm sorry, for the first three weeks and then um, once a week up to three months. And then we have the ability to extend that a year if the client feels any additional support. So we do a lot of touches with the clients, like a lot of visits, really getting to just interact and get to know them and give lots of information. Despite the known benefits of a doula support, only about 6% of pregnant persons use them. This may be due to lack of awareness or financial barriers. Many health insurance companies do not cover doula care, leaving mothers to pay out of pocket. Although cost varies, traditional doula care costs between $500 to $1,500 or more, a cost burden that many families may not be able to bear. That's why TBEI offers doulas at no charge to the client. You know, it's really difficult to worry about your pregnancy and your birth when you're trying to figure out how my life's going to stay on and what am I going to eat today. So the fact that we're able to go in and provide resources and assistance, um, extra help in that area, I think that's another difference between community-based doula work and traditional doula work. TBEI prides themselves on being able to offer doula services free of charge. Clients do have to meet criteria, however. 
So in order to be um, to receive a doula, you do have to meet certain criteria, which is live in the, the Tulsa city area, as well as um, be a part of one of the four communities that we serve, which is black women, native, teens, and justice involved. And so um, if you meet that criteria, there is no income limit or income range. It's just meeting that criteria, live in Tulsa, and then be a part of one of those um, communities, then you can receive a Free doula. We typically try to match our clients with doulas that are of and from the same communities. And so a black woman would get a black doula. A teen would get a teen, not necessarily a teen doula, but maybe a doula that um, was a teen parent. So definitely try to match our clients with people of and from the same community. Um, however, if we are unable to, we still recognize that definitely based on data that having a doula is better than not having a doula, especially for those communities that are at risk. So we do try really hard to match you. If we are unable to, you are still able to receive a doula. TBEI feels it is critical to educate the community on what exactly a doula does and dispel any myths. Yeah, so it's really important that we know that like doulas don't come in. We're not the muscle. Um, we are there as a support. We like to work with the nurses and work with the um, doctors and everyone on staff um, to give the client or patient the best care. And so it's not that we are coming in and trying to take over anyone's job. It's really just coming in and seeing how can we help you. So sometimes us being able to come in, you know, nurses have a lot of um, patients to care for. And, and so we can come in and we can do a lot of things. We can do position changes and we can make sure that they have water and things like that um, just to kind of take the load off of the nurses. And so we really like to work in conjunction with the medical team. According to Ashley, there are many misunderstandings about the role of doulas. So a couple of misconceptions or myths that we have about doulas is one is that um, you have to be having a home birth in order to have a doula. And that's not the case. So we support anyone in their um, birth journey and whatever experience they choose to have. So if you want to be in a hospital, if you choose to get an epidural, if you choose to be induced, if it's a cesarean, if you choose to be unmedicated, just whatever you um, desire, we are there to support you in that and that just make sure that you have the best um, birth experience that you can have so that's one two is um we are not midwives we are doulas so doulas are non-clinical non-medical support people so we don't do medical things right we don't do um cervical checks blood pressure checks like any of those things that a midwife or an ob would do so that's another one and then the other one is that we are again a support person we are not here to push any family any partner or anyone out from the experience we really want to help support everyone it's kind of likened to a wedding planner so when you have a wedding planner the bride and groom they hire someone to help plan their wedding it doesn't take away from the groom's part from the mother of the groom you know mother of the bride it doesn't take away from anyone's part they're just there to help facilitate the wedding and make sure it goes according to plan and that's exactly what a doula is we don't want to take anyone's place we really want everyone to be involved we're just there to help facilitate and make sure that the birth experience is that um is what they desire in addition to providing community-based doulas tbei offers training to community members to become doulas 
Yeah, so first, being a doula is an amazing job. Um, best job ever. And so what can you do? So TBEI does train community-based doulas. And so we have um, a training that happens a couple times throughout the year. If interested, they can always go to our um, Facebook page or our website, TulsaBEI.org, and get additional information. The training, it's a 20-session training. Um, we've had, so it's, it's very intense. Lots of information, lots of um, hands-on, you know, work. And so it's really, really intense in that sense. But when you leave, you definitely leave feeling like you have all the tools to be a successful doula. Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative is looking to create a community where Black women feel heard, respected, and safe. We hear again from Amar. For our doula services, you can go to our website and self-refer. And then also Queens Village uh, has a bunch of listening sessions coming up, one that will be March 25th. And what we're trying to do is get Black women to come out and tell us the activities that they want to do as a Black community of women in um, as a part of Queens Village. And all of those listening sessions will be at the Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge. Um, Go and check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, Queens Village Tulsa, um, and you can pre-register for those. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Dr. Jabron Pasha in Tulsa. Amidst the political rhetoric that surrounds banning abortions across the nation, mental health is often overlooked as an important aspect of maternal health. Shonda Little examines the case of a young Oklahoma woman who is caught in the center of the struggle between politics and an individual's rights. On June 24, 2022, the United States Supreme Court overturned the 1973 court ruling on Roe v. Wade. The court had been asked to consider Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization, which addressed a Mississippi law banning abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy in most cases. In the ruling, the conservative justices voted 6-3 to to uphold Mississippi's law. However, led by Associate Justice Samuel Alito, the Supreme Court also voted by a 5-4 to vote to overturn the landmark Roe decision that guaranteed abortion access nationwide. Abortion policies were automatically returned to individual states. According to the Center for Reproductive Rights, the 2022 ruling led to 11 states implementing abortion bans. Oklahoma is among them. Prior to the anticipated Supreme Court ruling, Oklahoma Governor Stitt signed into law the nation's strictest abortion ban. On May 26, 2022, NPR reported that Stitt said, quote, I promised Oklahomans that as governor I would sign every piece of pro-life legislation that came across my desk, and I'm proud to keep that promise today. From the moment life begins at conception is when we have responsibility as human beings to do everything we can to protect the baby's life and the life of the mother. That is what I believe, and that is what the majority of Oklahomans believe. End quote. Some mental health professionals are now concerned that Oklahoma's stringent anti-abortion laws will leave pregnant women who are struggling with suicidal ideation in peril. On December 9, 2022, 
A 22-year-old woman was charged with child abuse in Beckham County District Court after allegedly attempting suicide. According to court records, the investigation had begun almost two months earlier on October 14th when law enforcement responded to a report of a female allegedly jumping off a two-story balcony at her apartment complex in Elk City. The pregnant woman was identified as Brittany McCaskill. Quote, Brittany was life-flighted to a hospital in Oklahoma City due to her injuries, end quote, the reporting detective wrote. In court documents, the detective alleged that this was a suicide attempt and reportedly McCaskill's second suicide attempt in seven days. The first attempt allegedly involved a knife. McCaskill was reportedly approximately 31 weeks pregnant at the time. The detective added, quote, This detective has probable cause to believe that if Brittany takes her own life, then she would take the life of the child inside of her. This detective also has probable cause to believe that if Brittany continues to harm herself and her child, she has the risk of killing her unborn child inside of her or permanently causing harm to where the child suffers for the rest of its life, end quote. My name is Abby Daniels, and I work at Western Oklahoma Family Care Center, where I work with mentally unstable people that have mental health issues, and also our homeless community that also has a lot to do with mental health. And I also have a background working in mental health with Red Rock Behavioral Health Center. From Daniels' professional and personal experience, she is concerned that pregnant women experiencing mental health struggles will fear prosecution if they seek treatment. From my own personal hands-on experience with mental health, um, I was pregnant a year ago and I struggled severely with depression. And I've also watched women who, you know, I th thought at that time that I was alone and also let me know that they were experiencing it. and. It's very scary to reach out because it makes you feel like a bad person. It makes you feel like you're doing something wrong when in reality, you know, you're having double hormones and not knowing what to do with all of them. And I don't feel like they should be prosecuted for feeling how normal people feel without being pregnant on a daily. Um, we have very limited resources, even with our surrounding areas. With the 2023 Oklahoma legislative session beginning, some Democratic lawmakers are hopeful that legal protections can be passed to protect pregnant women in a state of mental health crisis. My name is Jared Deck. I'm a state representative in House District 44, which is Core Norman, Oklahoma. Deck fears for his constituency if legal protections are not given to those suffering from suicidal ideation. My community here in Norman has experienced very, very tragic situations. When it comes to mental health and the criminal justice system. And what we're seeing around our state is the criminalization of mental health. Each year nationally, about 2 million people are put into our jails who have a mental health issue that is diagnosable, is addressable, and is treatable. Deck believes addressing this gap isn't only essential for humane treatment of Oklahomans suffering from mental health issues but also for economic growth in the state's economy. According to our business community, the number one issue in our state is a lack of workforce. But I posit that our state, with draconian laws in the books, is not competitive 
at attracting a young, qualified, and hungry workforce who wants to make Oklahoma their home. Right now, we're struggling to attract talent from out of state. We're struggling to keep talent in state. And it's not merely because of the economic situation, but it's because of how we treat our people. I mean, we have to make a decision on, you know, what kind of place we are. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Shonda Little in Beckham County. You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma is sponsored by the Black Church Traditions and African-American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary, offering a master's degree in social justice online and in person. Learn more at wherefaithleads.com. Welcome back to Focus Black Oklahoma. In 2018, Oklahomans voted to legalize medical cannabis. In March, they will have an opportunity to vote for the legalization of recreational cannabis. Jamie Glisson has details on a recent forum on the issue. On March 7th, Oklahomans will head to the polls for ballot initiative State Question 820. This initiative will change Oklahoma statutes to legalize recreational cannabis in the state for anyone over 21 years of age. Statute-based state questions can be altered after passing normal legislation approved by the Oklahoma legislature and signed by the governor. The law would set recreational cannabis tax at 15%, which will result in half a billion dollars in new tax revenue over the next five years. The passage of State Question 820 would also allow for some marijuana drug offenders to have their convictions reversed and records expunged. Recently, the Oklahoma chapter of League of Women Voters and moderator Wayne Green hosted a panel of community leaders discussing the pros and cons of legalizing recreational marijuana. Panelists in opposition included Dr. Bruce Dart, Executive Director of the Tulsa Health Department, and Steve Kunzweiler, current District Attorney for Tulsa County. The pro-recreational panelists were Damian Shade, Executive Director of Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, and Michelle Tilly, the Campaign Director for State Question 820. Dr. Dart and D.A. Kunzweiler were in agreement regarding the potential health side effects of cannabis usage, like addiction, overdose, psychosis, and lung damage. D.A. Kunzweiler also stated that Oklahoma has more dispensaries than California and is the, quote, most pro-marijuana state in the nation, end quote. Here is Tilly in response, followed by a rebuttal by D.A. Kunzweiler. A lot of these arguments are arguments that we've heard for years. People are having these same kind of scare tactics because change is hard. We've heard a lot about this number of dispensaries issue, and this is actually something that the legislature has already addressed. There will be no new dispensaries for the next couple of years. This is a statutory change. In other words, once it's passed, We have given the state legislature the power to make it better. If there are things that need to be altered on some of these issues, then, you know, that's for our state legislature to do. But that was the same thing that we were promised before. She said this thing is going to be more properly regulated Mm -hmm. oversight. Right. That's what we were promised with the medical marijuana industry. Right. And it's the same assurance here. And yet, you know what we're doing. 
Damien Shade first addressed the health concerns and then pivoted to criminal justice reform after claims of foreign drug cartels and hardened criminals ruling the streets should 820 pass. Literature shows us that the danger, the amount of people who overdose on alcohol, who are involved in alcohol-related DUIs, who are involved in alcohol-related medical emergencies in the state of Oklahoma, far outstrips anything that I either D.A. Kunzweiler or Dr. Dart could imagine for a recreational cannabis industry. But that's the point. You could make those same claims about tobacco and alcohol. And the, the craziest piece of this conversation to me is that we're talking about marijuana as though passing state question 820 is some kind of a magical tipping point. According to District Attorney Kunzweiler, we have the most dispensaries in the nation right now. According to D.A. Kunzweiler, a massive amount of that is going out of the state already producing a huge unwanted catastrophe of downstream effects. I want to fight that with capitalism. I want to use something like state question 820 to drive down the price of the illicit market and kill the incentive for those black market folks, which is exactly, by the way, what the research shows us. In the states that have legalized, illicit markets begin to dwindle because they lose the economic incentive. It is the criminalization and the wall of bad, outdated policy, 40 years of bad, outdated policy that is perpetuating the market conditions that are allowing those criminal cartels to flourish. When asked about the impact of 820 on our prison systems, Damien claimed the prison population is not the piece where the main impact will be felt. The main impact of record expungement will affect those Oklahomans with low-level marijuana convictions who are struggling in our current system. First, you will hear from Shade and then Kunzweiler. We are talking about probably a population of somewhere between 50,000 and, and 100,000 Oklahomans so who are not incarcerated. Right. They are out in our community trying to rebuild their lives. I can tell you about friends of mine who made stupid choices when they were 19 and 20, and now they're 30 and trying to move on with their lives. And old, nonviolent marijuana drug convictions are an impediment from them buying a house but keeping food on the table, living a normal life. That is what this is about. Steve, agree or disagree on, on other points you made. Do you agree with that, with that analysis? So, so surprising, I, I would agree with him on this one simple point. Um, I don't know why we can't go back individually on certain cases, and we can pass some legislation that might create a, a way to certify that somebody who had previously been involved in some kind of criminal conduct that wasn't violent uh, may have restored themselves in whatever way, right? It, it, that can easily be done. D.A. Kunzweiler shared what he believes is a result of the passing of medicinal marijuana. Now we've embedded um, um, organized drug cartels who profiteer, and, and the argument was, well, we're creating, we're creating jobs, right? We're creating jobs. Right. The jobs, if you go to these locations, you're seeing people who have been human trafficked from across the border, across the border to work in these operations. Okay. I'm going to ask you to pass the microphone. Though several interview requests were made to the office of the No on SQ820 campaign, led by former Governor Fred Keating, no one responded to our requests. 
Damian Shade, however, agreed to further the conversation on State Question 820 and the changes that are to come should it pass. Question 820 passes. It will raise uh, nearly half a billion dollars in the next five years for mental health, addiction treatment, social services and education. All money we do not currently have to face whatever the social cost of marijuana are, right? Because D.A. Kunzweiler is right. There are some social costs to marijuana, just like there are social costs to tobacco and just like there are social costs to alcohol. But I don't think it helps us to pretend the marijuana market that actually exists here doesn't exist. I don't know how that helps us. I've heard some people say state question 820 does nothing about foreign land use. What? What does decriminalizing a drug have to do with land rights? I mean, when Oklahoma got rid of sundown alcohol laws, that also didn't change foreign land use. What in the world does foreign land use have to do with decriminalizing a drug? That's the piece that's ludicrous. It's ludicrous to believe that folks coming across the border um, into Oklahoma and buying marijuana are better served doing that in an illegal market than they would be served in doing it a market that's regulated, that's taxed, that has a seed to sale structure that we can actually track so we can shut down bad actors. Like he was talking about human traffickers and these other folks like doing terrible things, which are already criminal, by the way. Like I'm like, if they're human trafficking, go get them. Like, But the easiest way to shut down those people acting in the shadows is to get this massive multi-million dollar market out of the darkness um, to regulate it, to tax it, decriminalize it, and make it something that we can actually attack. Growing up, Damien had a friend that happened to be an affluent white young man who was pulled over while smoking marijuana. But he had parents who could afford to get him a lawyer and get an expungement so he could move on with his life. State Question 820, should it pass, offers that same path to thousands of Oklahomans who are currently living in peril. Why doesn't every rural white kid in Altus, Oklahoma deserve that same option? Why doesn't every black kid in North Tulsa deserve that same option? Why doesn't every uh, child of Hispanic descent in Southeastern Oklahoma City deserve that same option? That's what State Question 820, I think, is fundamentally about. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Jamie Glisson in Oklahoma City. Many genres of popular music in the United States have been influenced by black culture. Hip-hop, R&B, jazz, blues, rock and roll, soul, and more. However, contributions by black artists to country music are often overlooked. In 2021, one woman established an organization to change that. Carlos Moreno has the story. What do you wish for, my grumpy one? What do you want for when there's no one? To say you can't have everything your sweet little heart desires. What do I want for my grumpy one? Another season basking in the sun, sitting on the shore, watching the world fade into a turn. That was Queen Esther's My Grumpy One with J. Walter Hawks on ukulele 
live in the studio on October of 2020 as part of a series of direct-to-vinyl recordings. Queen Esther and one of her many fellow Black Opry Review artists, Nikki Morgan, will be taking the stage at the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa on February 23rd. Queen Esther's roots in Georgia and South Carolina inspire her music and inform her work to deconstruct it deeply ingrained and sometimes whitewashed historical narratives around American music. Here she is on a different stage with Aodele Makuru playing banjo at the Technology, Entertainment, and Design, or TED, residency in New York in May of 2018. Once upon a time, twang really was everywhere. Because for 400 years, African captives saturated the Americas with their food, their music, their traditions. In the South, twang was like a living, breathing thing that connected us to the earth, to the elements, and to each other. Everybody got a hold of our twang and made it their own. Now, when the African captives wanted to unwind after a long day of slavery, (laughs) there was the banjo. Hit it. Up until the 1840s, we Black folk were the only ones who played this instrument. It wasn't until recent years that Black, Native, and Latino musicians had begun to be written back into the history of America's folk music genres. The 2019 PBS documentary series, Country Music, directed by Ken Burns, acknowledged the Black origins of country and folk music and pointed out that while Black and white musicians in the South and Appalachia were playing many of the same songs with the same instruments, Record labels from their very beginnings in the early 1900s categorized music played by white artists as country and by black artists as race records. Fast forward about 125 years and not much has changed. In 2019, Old Town Road by Lil Nas X should have come as a surprise to no one paying attention to artists like Charlie Pride and Ray Charles, more recently Darius Rucker and Randon Giddens but had all of social media debating whether a black man had any business claiming country music. A fan and a flight attendant living in Virginia, Holly G was frustrated that country, the music she most loved, had near zero artists who looked like her in the mainstream industry. She took to Twitter and built a website in April 2021, launching Black Opry. I started looking for what Black Opry is and I couldn't find it anywhere. And so I created it. Um, one thing I did find, though, I do want to mention, um, this was right around the time Reese Palmer was starting Color Me Country, and I found her, and that was a huge kind of inspiration for me to launch Black Opry because there was no, like, dedicated platform for Black artists, and she was the only person out there doing the work for people of color, and so um, I was excited to launch it and kind of pop in and help do the work. Almost immediately, musicians, industry professionals, and fellow fans flocked to Black Opry, eager to support this new platform. Rain Doris, host of NPR's World Cafe, featured five Black Opry musicians on the Words of Music podcast in February of 2022. They talked about how the simple act of Holly renting an Airbnb during the 2021 Americana Fest Folk Music Festival, because none of the Black 
performing artists were invited to network events and after parties created a very special space. We hear first from Tyler Bryant and then Roberta Lee. I think we um, kind of shared the vision that uh, Holly has um, for you know, people of color and country music. And so when we first had our first meeting uh, during Americana Fest in Nashville, I think we all had that same feeling of like belonging, like, hey, I'm not the only person like doing this. Like there are actually other people doing it and they're really good. And so uh, we've all become just fans of each other and each other's music. And um, I think that's that's kind of like where it started, like kind of where it started. Yeah. And our very first review was in New York. And that's all because another member of the Black Opry, Lizzie No, um, had an open door. She had an opportunity to play at Rockwood Music Hall and there was a space open. And instead of keeping that bill to herself, she said, you know, I, I made friends in Nashville um, I built community and I want to invite that community with me. And that's really how the Black Opera Review started. So shout out to Lizzie No for that. With one concert, Black Opry was on the map. Black artists wanted to recreate the magic of the Americana Fest Airbnb on stage in front of audiences. And so I called up a few of the artists and surely enough, we got five of them up to New York for that first show at Rockwood Music Hall. Um, and when, I mean, we announced that with only four or five days notice. And as soon as we announced it, I started getting all of the, all this outreach from other venues that were like, we didn't know you guys did tours. Can you please bring it here? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Cause I didn't know I was doing a tour either. And so. The excitement around featuring black country artists has only grown over the past year. In that short amount of time, the Black Opera Review has featured more than 75 artists booking 80 concerts around the country. With no professional music industry experience, Holly has had to learn and grow from what was a passion project to running a new organization representing nearly 300 Black country and folk musicians. I feel like when you get thrown into something, you learn it a lot quicker than if you were to like study it and try to figure it out. And so we, um, I always say like all this happened on accident. Like I just was trying to start a blog and then all of this kind of like came just because people were so desperately wanting this community. Chloe Forte works as the event and program manager at the Woody Guthrie Center and Bob Dylan Center, collectively called the American Song Archives. Like many other fans, she discovered Black Opry on social media and was excited to know more. So, I mean, I found, I, I do this on Instagram too, where if I like somebody, I'll try to see who they tag and what other art they follow. They just kind of go on screen, so I'm following like several hundred or thousands of people <laughs> whose art I just like. And that was kind of how um, Black Opry came to my uh, attention. And it's just cool to see people taking it into their own hands. It's like it can become a blurry line, in my opinion, of wanting to be included and then giving all of the responsibility to these entities that have let you down and have proven that they don't really care about what you're trying to do. So... Um, when, and Holly's like a fan, you know, was a fan of music and it came from a pure love and the desire to see, um, to, to see that work. No, just to make it, to see people like her have a space at the concert she wanted to go to. Um, so yeah, it was just cool. <laughs> Something that listeners will experience is a vibe in the music that's not what you would normally expect to hear in mainstream country. This isn't Boot Scoot and Boogie or songs about losing your job, your wife, your truck, and your dog. It's music that sounds like country, but feels completely unique. It's nice also to hear 
folk music and country music that is still folk and country music, but that um, feels black and feels comfortable and feels like something that you can relate to and isn't so distant. Um, which is cool. Um, <laughs> I'm excited for people that come to the show. Like, it's going to be great. You got Queen Esther and Nikki Morgan coming through. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a cool day to be listening to music. For more information and tickets to the Black Opry Review on February 23rd, visit WoodyGuthrieCenter.org. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Carlos Moreno in Tulsa. Oklahoma means land of the red people. Yet the state once possessed more all-Black towns than any other. One of the lesser-known facets of this history is the legacy of all-Black towns established by freedmen of various indigenous nations. Here's Crystal Patrick with the first segment of an eight-part series on the state's historic all-Black towns. The intense focus on the neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa has inspired many in the state to take a closer look at more of Oklahoma's Black communities. A place of Western settlement in the 19th century, many threads weave together to create more all-Black towns and neighborhoods in Indian Territory than anywhere else in the nation. Prince, yes, that Prince, wrote in his memoir, The Beautiful Ones, that the combined wealth of all-Black settlements in the U.S. was greater than that of the British Empire. A new exhibit curated by the University of Tulsa's Oklahoma Center for the Humanities shines light on Oklahoma's historic all-Black towns. We greatly appreciated this exhibit, but felt that it was time we traveled to some of these places to explore this history for ourselves and see what is happening in the remaining Black towns today. So here we are. Are you recording? <laughs> yeah, I'm recording. Oh, okay. Recording now. Okay. It's cold. <laughs> Very cold. It's like it was degrees. warm yesterday. It makes no sense. Anyway. <laughs> it's Oklahoma. Yeah. That was my fellow correspondent, Carlos Moreno, and I realizing very quickly that before going anywhere, we needed a plan of action. The page for all black towns on the Oklahoma Historical Society website mentions, quote, from 1865 to 1920, African-Americans created more than 50 identifiable towns and settlements, end quote. And that, quote, all black towns grew in Indian territory after the Civil War when the former slaves of the five tribes settled together for mutual protection and economic security, end quote. Already, we had many questions and conflicting information. How do these dates square with the fact that we know Tallahassee, Oklahoma, was founded in 1850, and Sandtown, located in the southern part of Oklahoma City, may have been founded earlier than that? Were all black towns really founded only by the enslaved people of the five tribes when we know that Langston was founded by Edward McCabe, who settled in Indian Territory by way of the 1889 land run? We were going to need to look at maps and gather some more context. I was looking at a map of Tulsa, and it's interesting how the rail lines mm -hmm. eventually just get replaced with highways. Like... It's the same pathway, right? It's just a different way of getting from place to place. Like we're on a road trip, like, right? We're going to get in our cars and drive. But like back then, right? everybody would have traveled by train. Right. So we would be following some of the same pathways. It's just, we're just traveling a different way. 
And now you know that you, I mean? right, and now that you mentioned railroad lines, I definitely am interested in learning about how <laughs> how that impacted their economies and even the towns that are still here today that are still there today. So we were already thinking about paths well worn by settlement, horse, wagon, and later trains, and then cars. We had to run this back to the native history of Oklahoma. Looking for some of this historical context from a first American's perspective, we reached out to a friend. My name is Brittany Postjoke, and I am a Muskogee Nation citizen, and I spend a lot of time doing uh, research on my family history as well as um, early Muskogee settlement into Oklahoma. Growing up, Brittany struggled to reconcile the stories from her family with what she was being taught in schools. Right, exactly. And, you know, I had these these family um, histories of us coming over on the Trail of Tears. I mean, I still was at that time um, visiting my great-grandfather who was Muskogee and grew up speaking Muskogee and had gone to boarding school and didn't want to be Muskogee after that, didn't, didn't want to talk about his experience. Uh, so, yeah, I, I had that you know, connection to him and then going to school and then talking about, you know, this history just very whitewashed and glossed over. We only had one page on Native American history and it was kind of boiled down to sounding like the five tribes just decided to one day move to Oklahoma. <laughs> there wasn't, didn't talk about forced removal or any of the, you know, quote unquote bad stuff. And so me knowing that, my own family history, and then trying to reconcile that in school was just a very odd experience. Frustrated that she could not find answers in her school books, Brittany searched for the truth of her roots with her mother and soon discovered an interesting connection with her friend Carrie, another Muskogee Nation member whose family is from Tallahassee and ancestors were Creek freedmen. When we met, we started going over our family histories and she had told me that her family belonged to Tallahassee Mission Church. And I said, well, my family had um, gone to Tallahassee Mission. And so we, you know, that's something that we have been looking into to see, like, where, if possible, there was an overlap with our, our families being together in the same town, um, you know, way back when, and then us finding each other now. And we do actually share a cousin, so one of her cousins uh, on her, you know, grandfather's side is one of my cousins. So just kind of seeing how we're all connected and, you know, really like finding out that we're not as, as fractured and divided as they made us, made it seem. According to an article by Gary Zeller, a historian at Angelina College in Texas, Tallahassee Mission was founded in 1850. After a fire in 1880, the school shut down and was reopened three years later as a Tallahassee Manual Labor School for Creek Freedmen and other African Americans. The school eventually closed in 1935. Talking with Brittany about her family roots, we were curious about what she might want us to keep in mind as we were getting ready to travel to Tallahassee. I don't want to hear about, um, you know, guesses. I don't want to hear about theories. I want to hear from the actual people, their oral history, um, because I feel like that's what's important. Because I feel like there's this narrative of written history and that being what 
is real. And, you know, as a Muskogee person, our history is oral and we focus on that because that's what's been passed down to us. And so we, we kind of take people's word over what's been written. With Brittany's story and her reminder that we really needed to dig deeper to uncover the stories of these places in our minds, we decided that we really needed to ask an expert and someone who is deeply connected to Native and Black history in Oklahoma. One of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, we're, we're, we're headed out on this journey, right? Mm-hmm. There are things that we want to know in terms of like history, mm-hmm. What's some of the story behind the story that, yes. you know, the, the things that we've heard. Right. But but the things that we've heard are a narrative. Right. That may not necessarily be the whole story. Right. And one of the people that we're going to be talking to is Vanessa Adams Harris over at the John Hope Franklin mm-hmm. Center. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, too, like before we you know, hit the road. <laughs> what are the questions that, what are the things that we need to research? What are the things that, what are the questions that we need to ask? We forget to not compare our, ourselves. We always are comparing ourselves and how we're talking and thinking and stuff. And we really have to lock ourselves into, uh, you know, that early 20th century mindset of what is the language they would have used and how much education they actually would have had. It was just a few people who were educated because um, one of the other things that they used to do was to put on the suit or the dress and the hat and have the look of prosperity. But they were not prosperous. And when we talk about prosperity, we're talking about compared to coming out of the fields. Right. And I think we I think we. I think that's hard for us to ingest, but that is a truth that we must ingest. Miss Vanessa reminded us to look carefully when we visit these places at the infrastructure that is there as a clue to uncover the real story of these places. Look at the acreage. How big? What, what's the acreage of a all-Black town? Is it 20 acres? Is it 40 acres? What's the, uh, what's a, what does the platting look like for that? How big of a space are we talking where these homes were and where the town is, right? And then where's the railroad track? Does it go right through the town? Does it go on the side? And then what's the biggest white township in relation to that place? So you need, you know, generally there's a pastor. So you need some kind of a church and a general store of some sort, um, some kind of a community building, you know, some, if that's not the church, then it may be another place. Um, how many, as you go to these different towns, where are the Masons? Where are the lodges? A theme that has come up in every conversation before we even left Tulsa is that all of our histories are connected. It's not just Black history. It's all of our history and how, right. how intertwined we are with um, Native American history here in Oklahoma, too. Like, you cannot separate um, any of the Black history from Native American, we're all, it's all intertwined. Yeah. I think that is an important point, too. Like, we try to put things in boxes. Like, this is Black History Month, so 
all we're going to talk about is only black people. Right. (laughs) You know, and forgetting that black history, native history, Latino history, Asian history, it's all mixed Mm -hmm. together. There were, you know, there were Asian families who picked cotton alongside. Absolutely. You know, and there were Latino families who came you know, here to work in the coal mines wow. with, with white people and black people, you know, right. it's like, it's, we, we, we do, we put things in boxes and we say like, this is black history, but it's, it's that's kind of ridiculous it, because it, it, it's, it's, it's not black history, it's history. And we, and, that, right? and that's what we've allowed, like, we've allowed here in this nation to put things in a box and compartmentalize and just continue the separation. Um, by downplaying Black history, you're actually helping to, in my opinion, to like erase a lot of other history, too. Poet and journalist William Cullen Bryan wrote, Truth, crushed to earth, shall rise again. It is these hidden, siloed, and isolated stories that correspondents Jasmine Toby, Judy Williams, Carlos Moreno, and I hope to weave together. We'll be bringing stories from the towns of Tallahassee, Langston, Foley, Taft, and Rentiesville over the next several episodes of the show. The All Black Towns exhibit is open at the Henry Zero Center for Arts and Education at the University of Tulsa's Oklahoma Center for the Humanities until February 25th. For more information, call 918-631-4400. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Crystal Patrick in Tulsa. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Additional support is provided by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, and the Commemoration Fund. Our theme music is by Moffat Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producers are Karish Ali Lansana and Bracken Clark. Our associate producers are Smurthy Iyengar and Jesse Ulrich. Visit us online at kosu.org, tricitycollective.com slash focusblackoklahoma, and on YouTube at Tri-City Collective. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at focusblack-ok. You can hear Focus Black Oklahoma on demand for free at kosu.org, NPR1, npr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. KOSU Business Circle memberships are ideal for small businesses looking to support public radio and get a little bit of airtime. To learn how your business can become a member, email development at kosu.org.